So, Genesis 14. (laughs) It's a a challenging passage in some ways. Challenging not just to comprehend, but also challenging to read as well. Uh, There's a lot of different names here. I I attempted to get my wife, just as Michelle does for Sam, to come up and read it for me. She wasn't as eager. (laughs) Because she, like me, has read the passage. There's a lot of different nation names here. And pretty much you have this... Uh, a few different themes that kind of pop up in, in Genesis 14, and a few different characters connected to those themes. And uh, as we read through it, we'll read about a battle, we'll read about Melchizedek, a very mysterious figure, and we'll read about these two different kingdoms, the kingdom of Sodom and the kingdom of Salam. And as, as we read it, try, try to think, okay, what, what are the different characteristics for these kingdoms? Because that's going to make up the basis for my points here. So starting Genesis 14, verse 1. At the time where Amraphel was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eliezer, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemamba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zohar. All these later kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Kato Laomar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kato Laomar and the kings allied with him, with him went out and defeated Rephites in Ashtaroth, uh, Canaan, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shever, Kirithaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Sur, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Emirates, who were living in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedoleomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eliezer. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorites, a brother of Esh, Eshcol and Amel, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram, heard, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people, the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedolaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, or Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. 
But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, with raised hands, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread of, my, of the strap of my sandal, of, of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing what my men have eaten. Oh, sorry. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aniel, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. It's quite, quite a passage. Let's have a quick prayer and then we can unpack what some different points uh, that we can figure out from Genesis 14. Uh, Heavenly Father, yeah, I thank you so much, Lord, that you would uh, bring us together into this church, Lord, and allow us to engage and dig into your word, that you would give us the examples of these kingdoms, Lord, from thousands of years ago that still have messages that ring true to us today. Uh, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling across the world, especially our brothers and sisters uh, uh, in, the, in the conflict with Russia, Lord, uh, in Ukraine. Lord, I pray for security and deliverance for them, Lord, a reassurance that you are the one who is in control that you are the one who decides all fates of man, and you have the ability, ability, Lord, to redeem them when necessary. And I love you for that, Lord, that you are the ultimate power. And Lord, as I, as I preach this word, I pray, Lord, your spirit can be with me and those who are listening, and that it can convict our hearts that your work can cut deep and really resonate with us in a deeper level. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Sweet. So I have three points here. Relatively quick points. Uh, and the points are, are, are fairly simple as well. I'm trying to outline some, some contrasting figures. So I have, my, as my first point, I have Sodom's stubborn sinfulness. Of course, Sodom is in contrast to Abraham and the king Melchizedek as well. And uh, it's important to note that because it is quite a contrast. And the second point I have here is, do we seek God or gain? Which one are we seeking to obtain? Which is of more value to us? And as we look into that point, we'll touch very gently on the topic of tithing. Because it can be a sensitive topic, sometimes unnecessarily sensitive, but it is a very relevant, uh, relevant topic to this passage. And finally, my final point is we're going to unpack who Melchizedek actually is. Melchizedek is such a mysterious uh, figure throughout the entire Bible. He only pops up a few times. But at the same time, he has such bearing over how we understand who Jesus is and how we understand God's larger redemptive plan. So my third point is Melchizedek the prototype priest. So let's check this out. Starting off with Sodom's stubborn sinfulness. Now, this is not the last time we're going to read about Sodom, is it? In a few more chapters, we're going to encounter Sodom once again in Genesis 19. And spoiler, I don't know who's going to be doing that sermon, but spoiler, it doesn't end well for them. It ends terribly. But... Just here in this passage, if we just had Genesis 14 without the foreknowledge of what will happen in Genesis 19, it would definitely shape how we view Sodom. Like, if I think about it, if I had no knowledge of Genesis 19 and was just had Genesis 14, I was reading about Sodom, my expectations for what would happen to Sodom and Gomorrah would be very different. Now, let me explain what I mean, okay? So, when I read about Sodom and Gomorrah, they have a battle and they lose terribly. And you have these kings and the men's of these kings hiding in tar pits. And you can imagine that idea that you're beaten so badly you're forced to hide in pits to escape your enemy. And when I read about that, I can't help but think, oh gosh, that must be very humbling. Gosh, that must really cut against the pride. And of course, 
it's not just the humility of defeat as well, but the humility in knowing that your redemption came from a Hebrew. It wasn't by your own might, your own strength, but it was by Abraham and the God of Abraham. And so when I read about Sodom, and if I had no expectation of what Genesis would eventually hold for them, I can't help think, oh, wow, they maybe would repent. Maybe this would be a different country, a different city. Especially considering that Sodom, or the king of Sodom, Berah, he comes in contact with two of the most influential and important figures in Genesis, Abraham and Melchizedek. And when we think about that, he has exposure to these extremely spiritual people, extremely influential figures. But three chapters later, where is he? Being destroyed by God. And it's one of the great ironies, I feel like, of the passage, that the the one who delivers Sodom and Gomorrah, the one who redeems their people and their possessions, three chapters, oh, sorry, not three chapters, that's bad math, five chapters later, (laughs) is destroying them. And I feel like there's a point in here, mixed in here, for us to kind of like comprehend and hold on to. Because Sodom has the most stubborn sin possible. And even meeting people, even being exposed to spirituality, even being exposed to God Most High, even being humbled and put in the position where their strength is useless, they are still unwilling to repent. And the scary part is that you, we as a people, as Christians, we can have the same type of exposure that Sodom and Gomorrah had. We can be exposed to Jesus. We can be exposed to people who speak truth into our life. Which, in comparison to what Sodom and Gomorrah had, really, it's a fair equivalence. Melchizedek, Abraham, they are great examples of Sodom, but Sodom and Gomorrah still go away unchanged. And this kind of theme, it pops up many times in the Bible, of someone encountering God, or someone being rebuked by Jesus, or someone being healed by Jesus, and it not resonating on a deeper level. The things that come to my mind, I think, of, I think of Israel when they leave Egypt in the great, you know, the Exodus, and they grumble and they moan against God. And, and essentially, I mean, that's the risk we always have as a people, as a church, where we've encountered essentially the God Almighty. I mean, Latham is going to be baptized today. He's going to be brought into the kingdom. That's going to be the great encounter. From there, it's only going to get better. And we've all essentially had that. But just because we've had that, does not mean we have room to be content. Does not mean we have room to be lazy. Because the chapters ahead of our lives could be very different if we get in that mindset. And of course, I think of Luke 17. Luke 17 is a great passage. It's a passage where Jesus heals the 10 people who suffer from leprosy. And remember, he heals these people. They all go away. Only one returns. Nine, do not return. Nine, do not come back and give praise to God. Nine, remain unchanged in their hearts despite having the external change and healing of their leprosy. And it's such a powerful idea. And the passage, as I was forming this point, which immediately came to my mind is in Hebrews 10. And the reason I'm thankful is in Hebrews because we'll be touching on Hebrews quite a bit, if you know Melchizedek. And so in Hebrews 10, verse 26, it says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice of sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment 
and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, if that's not what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't know what is. They are destroyed, and it is a hard truth. I think sometimes, because we, we come to church, we do the religious things, even we, we engage in our Bible, we engage in relationships, we can be lured into a false sense of security. Because what has happened in the past, because of my exposure in the past, it doesn't matter in what direction I'm heading now. This passage is saying it does matter. It matters a lot. And the interesting thing I find here as well about Sodom is the first time we ever meet them, they are in rebellion. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting idea? Now, to be fair, they're rebellion against Kelod, oh my gosh, I always forget his name, Kedolaomar, and that's a, obviously a, a human kingdom. But it, it says a lot, because the first time we meet Sodom and Gomorrah, they're in a rebellion. And the final time we meet Sodom and Gomorrah, they are in rebellion. The very same thing. I think the biblical authors, the authors, the biblical writers are trying to help us see something. It's something to do with the posture of our hearts. Rebellion has a way of seeping into many different areas of our lives. But so often when rebellion is small in one section of our lives, it can be neglected. Well, I'm doing great in these areas. Let me just leave it here. But we've got to start thinking, in what area are we as a church rebelling? You personally, what area of your life are you rebelling right now? Because we need to start thinking about that deeper so that we don't end up in Genesis 19 like Sodom and Gomorrah, an enemy of God. And there's many different ways that we can rebel. I think some of the most common ways for me personally, and maybe if you're a university student, you might be able to connect to this to some degree, would be discipline. I think to myself, you know what, I won't be disciplined with this area of my life in terms of sleep. That's a huge one, and Pam would be nodding her head as well. I'm terrible with sleep. But that lack of discipline in that particular era will filter into all my errors. It filters into my work. It filters into my relationships. It filters into my spirituality. Because I've let one aspect be ruled by rebellion. And rebellion has a way of growing and festering the more we leave it to the side. Or I think of purity as well. Purity is another major one. We let our minds wander in one particular area. We are not obedient in our thoughts and our, and our, our patterns of how we think. And that leads gradually to a larger rebellion, which is our actions. I don't think there's an adultery which has ever happened which did not first begin with a rebellion of the mind. That's where it first begins. We have to think, what areas are we rebelling in? Whoops. But fortunately, we have the alternate, uh, the, uh, the, the alternate, the opposite example in Abraham, right? So we have Sodom, the rebellious Sodom, stubbornness, sinfulness, and then we have Abraham. Now, Abraham is not a clean-cut character, is he? Jack unpacked this last week when he looked at Genesis 12 and 13. Of course, Abraham goes into Egypt with a scheme, a lie, passing off his wife as his sister, and it's rebellious, it's, it's negative, it's bad. But what do we see here with Abraham? We see a very different type of Abraham, don't we? We see Abraham who's not willing to value someone's life over that of someone's, or over, over that of his own possessions. And there's a few examples in here of that. But think about how he gives his possessions a 10% of what he has to, to Melchizedek. He has a very generous, 
generous Abraham to think that even after he's claimed possessions, rightfully so, he's claimed the bounty of the war, he gives it back to, he gives it back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Here is someone who's actually on the opposite path to what Sodom is. Sodom's deteriorating all the way to Genesis 19. Abraham is actually maturing. He's advancing. He's growing spiritually. His character is changing. And yes, he definitely does not have a perfect character. And as we unpack Genesis over the next few, uh, few weeks, we'll see his non-perfect character come out. But there is a point here. Abraham is changing for the better. Abraham is trusting and having faith in God. And there's this great quote I found uh, by C.S. Lewis. And it, it kind of encapsulate encapsulates the idea of rebellion. And what it says is, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvements, but he is a rebel who must lay down his arms. A rebel which, who must lay down his arms. And what we see with Abraham is the beginning of him saying, God, I'm going to put down my arms and what I can do, you take the reins. You do it, God. And we see, we see the, I guess we see in some sense the, the result of that. When Abraham does it his way, it doesn't pan out. But when he does it God's way, there's a shift, there's a change. But how do we get to that point? How do we get to that point where we can have the humility and the eagerness to change and be on the right track like Abraham. And I think the answer to that is in my next point. Do we seek God or are we seeking gain? So Genesis 14 verse 20 says, uh, yeah, verse 20 of the passage we just read, it says, And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave, or Abraham gave a tenth of everything. It's interesting, right? You have Abraham giving a tenth, but that immediately follows an incredibly powerful statement made by Melchizedek. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. I think the way we de develop a heart like Abraham, a generous heart, is that we need to acknowledge who is the one who's been giving to us. Abraham recognized that God is the reason that they were victorious in battle. God was the reason that he had success. And because God's the reason, therefore give back to God. And there's no sense of like ownership. Abraham doesn't say that this is mine, I'm going to hold on to it. He recognizes and he acknowledges exactly who it belongs to, exactly who is responsible for his success. And what's really compelling is that he does it with Sodom and Gomorrah as well. He gives it to them. And I think that might be for a slightly different reason. And this is also an insight into Abraham's character. Is that there's some scholars or some commentaries which talk about how Abraham gives, or Abraham gives back to Sodom and Gomorrah what belongs to them instead of keeping it. Because essentially what he says here, that I need accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or of the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham or Abraham rich. Abraham wants Abraham, gosh, I'm gonna come on doing that. Abraham wants no possible reason, no possible excuse for anyone to get credit outside of God. Sodom Gomorrah, you don't get it. God gets the credit, God gets the glory, and only God. And it shows Abraham's just Abraham's kind of like uh, determination 
to make sure God gets his glory. But compare that to Sodom. Sodom is the opposite. Abraham is God-focused, give God the glory. But what are the first words to come out of the king of Sodom's mouth when he approaches Abraham? Give me. It's on, the, it's on the board. It was a trick question. Hopefully we all had it. Okay, but it was give me, give me. And that's insight into the two contrasting hearts. One desires gain. The other one desires God. And as long as we desire gain for self, we're always going to be missing out the pursuit of God as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And so what does this mean for us? And this is a, a tremendously challenging question, okay? Because there's no way kind of walking around this. Genesis 14 is the first time we get to see the, the, uh, an official tithing. It's the, the origins of giving to the church, of giving to God. And there's no way I could preach about this, this chapter without first addressing it. And what's interesting about the fact that Abraham gives to Melchizedek, the priest of the God Most High, is that it predates the law to give. It's pre-law. There's no command by God to give. There's no command to tithe. And two of the core examples of giving in, 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 in the Bible is, uh, of course, it's Abel and Cain, right? Abel gives an offering unprompted by God. And here we have Abraham giving an offering, unprompted by God. But how often do we not give to God? How often do we hold on to what we view as just ours? We have a perception that is really so, so narrow. We don't see the larger picture of what we have in this country and how blessed we actually are is only attributed to God and God alone. There's a lot of people struggling out in the world, but we are, in many ways, we have it extremely blessed here. Extremely blessed. But there's so many excuses, excuses for why we don't you know, contribute to church. I mean, one of the excuses is that it's legalistic, which in my mind is probably the least rational one, since there's no law to give, and here we have Abraham giving. But you have excuses like, uh, oh, I, I give in different ways. Maybe I give my time. Well, amen, it's great you give your time. But why, but why does that exclude you from giving financially as well? Abraham gives a lot of time to God, a lot of effort to God. Or a very common one, which I feel as well, well, especially when I was a student anyway, is I, I simply can't afford to give. But we're looking at it from the wrong angle. It's not about the amount, it's about the heart behind it. It's about what, who we are actually acknowledging who's in charge when we give. So maybe think to yourself, what kingdom do you most commonly, or which character do you reflect more closely? Do you reflect bearer, Sodom, give me? What can I take from church? Or do you reflect Abraham, who gives unprompted to Melchizedek because he recognizes what God has done? And really the heart, if we really want to understand the heart behind why Abraham gives, the only word I can think of is gratitude. He gives for a great, out of a grateful heart because he knows what God has done. Now, what do we have to be grateful for besides the physical blessings we've been given? Besides the, the job, the work, the love from our families, the security we experience in Australia? Well, God has given us the ultimate gift. Yeah. 
And we'll touch on this a little bit later, but he's given us the gift of grace. He's atoned for our sins and made the ultimate sacrifice. And gosh, if you're not having gratitude arise in your heart because of that reality, then no, you will never be like Abraham. You just won't. Because you're so self-focused. You don't recognize the gift which has actually been given to us. And so when it comes to giving, gratitude to God is what will motivate us. And it's interesting as well because I feel like this resonates for all ages. We had a, a team Devo uh, on Friday, and uh, we was, well, I was with the team boys in Byron as well, and we're just having a bit of a discussion, how can we motivate these boys, who are very unmotivated, to, to help, to contribute? And the answer was to get them to reflect on themselves and to kind of picture or to understand what there is to be grateful for. Yes, you've been, you know, you've been given a dog, it's hard work. But you know what? It's such a blessing that he teaches you great character. This is what I was saying to Eric, who's been given a dog. It's such a blessing that I walk that dog and care for that dog. And really, when you start looking at it from a different perspective, it changes the way we serve. It changes the way we act, and it changes our relationships as well. Amen? Amen. And ultimately, what, the point I really want to make here as well, we'll go on to the next slide, is when we start having a grateful heart, when we start really pursuing God and doing it God's way, God delivers. He responds. And that's the message we get here as well. Now, the early Israelite readers, as they were reading this, maybe during the time of Exodus or even further on during the time of Joshua, they would be listening or reading this text and they would be recognizing certain names, like the Amalekites, the Amorites, these are historical enemies of Israel. If you're familiar, if, if you can see the picture up there, I know it's a bit faint, but that's Moses raising his staff when the Amalekites were attacking Israel from behind during, uh, I think it's during Numbers. Um, and so th these people were historical enemies. And what the biblical author is trying to do here, he's trying to help Israel recognize that these enemies you are, who are opposing you right now who are trying to crush and kill you right now, they've already been conquered in the past. Kedolema conquers them. He's a, a, you know, a, a Canaanite king. I think he's Canaanite. I can't remember exactly. But he's a king who conquers these nations. And then God comes and he conquers Kedolema. Now think about the message. These nations which you're so scared of were already beaten and God beat the guy who beat them. Wouldn't that change your outlook on life? Wouldn't that change the way you feel persecution, though you feel hard times? But the reality uh, which Israel is like, reading into this passage, well, what, what this passage is essentially saying to Israel, that same message is true for us as well. <laughs> that we have a God who delivers. When we turn to God, God responds. And there's so many different ways. If you're on campus, you're sharing your faith, you get some kind of rude or uh, aggressive response, that reality means a lot, that God delivers you. The disciples in Ukraine right now, those taking refugees, God will deliver them. And my gosh, that is a message of hope that we can stand on, that God is faithful, he will be there for his people. And it's incredibly encouraging for us to know that. Oops. Good, buddy. Thanks, Trevor. 
Much appreciated, dude. <laughs> and, and really what I'm trying to help us see here is that when we do it God's way, it, it goes well. When we do it our way, it goes poorly. And we see that example of Abraham. Abraham goes in Egypt. Yes, he, go, he gets a lot of possessions from his lie, but he essentially puts lots and his family into a position where they are going to be, you know, in Sodom, in wickedness. People don't always see the end results. They see, oh, I got the possessions, I got the gain. But my gosh, there's consequences for Abraham's decision to follow Abraham. But when he does it God's way, when he pursues God, it pans out. And the passage what comes to my mind straight away is a very rele- relevant passage. It's Psalm 110. And it's verse 5 to 7, which we'll look at for now. We would be, we'll be touching on this passage a little bit later, okay? But we'll just touch on this now. It says in verse 5, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the earth. Powerful language. And he will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Now, the psalmist David, he's writing about the Messiah. This is Messiah-based language. And the important thing to understand about Messiah-based language is that it was in the future. It's coming. It's far off. And this is a really important point for us to understand because even though God delivers, even though God will be there, it may not be in your time. It may not be based on your timing. It was, it, we may not see the fruits of God's faithfulness now, but there will come a time where Jesus will return. That's what we're looking at in Revelation right now, if you guys have had a chance to make it down. We're looking at this eschatological idea that one day Jesus is going to return and he's going to make every wrong right. He's going to make every form of wickedness pal and be destroyed by righteousness. And the kingdom will be consummated. It will be here in full. And Israel, even during the hardest times, they're looking to the Messiah, knowing that there will be a time where we will be delivered. And we should be the same as well. Are we looking forward to that deliverance? Are we expecting it? Are we desiring it? And the real way we're going to interpret what it means for when Jesus comes back is we're going to have to break down who Melchizedek is. That's my last and final point. I know it's warm in here. We want coffees. But hang in there. Final points. Who is Melchizedek? The great mysterious figure of Melchizedek. And there's a lot of speculation about who he is. And that made it hard for me researching it. But I eventually maybe got some sense of understanding. I hope anyway. Uh, Some Jewish rabbis believe that uh, Melchizedek is Shem, Noah's son. Which, uh, I don't know, a common belief also is that he, he may be an angel. The archangel Michael, that's a common one which, which uh, pops up again and again. And that wasn't just for like our modern evangelical believers. That's, more, that's also for like early rabbis as well in the Jewish faith. They had that sense that this might be Michael. And uh, also, is he a divine figure? Some people believe that Melchizedek is Jesus. And we'll see where that perception comes from a little bit later because we'll look at Hebrews where it says he resembles the Son of God. Easy to make that kind of uh, develop that perception. But the point I want to make here is that we can't use the New Testament solely to figure out who Melchizedek is. The New Testament 
brings us back to the Old Testament in order to develop an understanding. And if you were to read Genesis 14, purely just Genesis 14, you would not get a perception that Melchizedek is an angel. You wouldn't get that kind of perception at all. You will get the idea that he is the priest of God Most High. He is a king, but he is also a man. And what we'll touch on here, which I really want to touch on, is this idea that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. So when it comes to interpreting who Melchizedek is and what he means for our understanding of who Jesus is, that is a fundamental point for us to understand. Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. But if you were an Israelite, hearing about Melchizedek's royal priestness, would you... That would be a challenging idea. It wouldn't necessarily compute very well. Because the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, they were of a different lineage to the kingly priesthood. They were separate. These are two completely separate duties. So then you have a priest who's a king. And Abraham, your father of many nations, the patriarch, is giving him a a tithe. In some sense, saying, you are my spiritual superior. This must have been an extremely confusing idea. And I'm going to break it down and try to make some sense of it right now. So back to Psalm 110 in verse 4. It says, the Lord has sworn, this is David again, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you, the Messiah, I'm adding that part in, the Messiah, Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that point there where it talks about forever matters a lot. Because the Levitical priesthood wasn't forever. The priest would offer a sacrifice for the eternal sins of sins. If you're not familiar with what the priest did, the priests of Israel would offer a sacrifice of atonement on behalf, would be a mediator for the people of Israel. But they would have to, the people would have to return, the priest would have to do it again, the priest would eventually die, and then it just wasn't a perfect, perfect system. But you have here the priesthood of Melchizedek, which was a perfect system. It was forever. It's a royal priestly, uh, a royal priesthood, sorry. And, uh, and what, we, what, what we need to understand is that that is God's intention. This is maybe getting a little bit deeper, a little bit more challenging. But what we see all the way up to Moses is that the person who speaks to God and mediates with, with God and the person who is in charge is one and the same person. You have Abraham. You have Adam. Okay, you have the, these figures all the way up to Moses, and then what happens with Moses? And this, in the story of the, the of the burning bush, he says, "Ah, oh, God, I can't do it. Don't 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 send me back to Egypt. I'm not up for that. I can't speak very well. And no matter how much God presses him, Moses will not relent. And so then, what happens is that you get a split." God says, well, bring your brother, or your, your, yeah, your, I think your brother, uh, Aaron, and that will, that will be, your, your, I guess, your partner in going back to Egypt. And in that sense, we get the Aaronic priesthood, which turns into the Levitical priesthood, but that's only because Moses was not faithful. 
In some sense, the only reason the Levitical priesthood emerged in the first place is because it's a concession. It was never meant to be the final priesthood. It was never meant to be the final idea. God had a different priesthood in mind, and we see it here with Melchizedek. We see a priest who is both the king, and we see a priest who is also a, uh, a, a, the mediator as well, the priest. And we get both in this man. And the cool thing is that once Jesus comes on the scene, we get to see the final priest for who he actually is. And I'll make this quick. We're almost finished. I just want to read this quote. And this is from uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. And he does the Naked Bible podcast. I got a lot of my resources for this podcast from him. Uh, from this podcast, uh, yeah, from him. Uh, so if you want to check it out, definitely worth it. But he says, God makes a concession and brings the priesthood of Aaron into the picture. It would seem reasonable to think that both those officers operate in one person and it was God's ideal because that again harkens back to Adam and that is God's consistent plan. God is meeting with a person, a patriarch, and that patriarch is the go-between for God and the rest of the people in the picture, the rest of the people that are concerned. But that breaks apart when we get to Moses. So God's ideal would have been to have them both in one. And since this Melchizedek figure is the oldest figure that continues the patriarchal idea better than Moses did. He gets referenced in Psalm 110, like we just read, and he gets connected to David's line, the royal line, and he gets connected to the Messiah as well. And so who is Melchizedek? The big question, Melchizedek is a prototype of who Christ will eventually be. He is a priest of a priesthood which does not end. Now, does Melchizedek die? Yes. But because the priesthood of, of Melchizedek has no beginning or no end, there's no sense of like, okay, because uh, my father was a priest, now I'm a priest, or now because I have a son, he's going to take over for me one day. There's no sense of like it began or ended. And that's exactly what we get with Jesus. A priesthood that does not end and does not begin. It just continues. And that matters a lot when we start thinking about our salvation. Second last slide, why does it matter? Oh, wait, why does it matter? And the reason it matters, we can find it in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verse 22 to 25 first of all, okay? And that says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there's been many of those priests since death prevented, prevent, Wait, since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, remember, he's that permanent priest. Oh, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. That is the reality of the Melchizedek order, the Melchizedek priesthood. It's saying this priesthood is enough to save us completely where we have no sins left and when we sin even after we're saved Jesus is present to intercede for us to make that atonement for us and that is why he's a better, better priest than anything else we could possibly ever hope for now Melchizedek is pointing us towards that reality that Jesus is enough for us that his sacrifice on the cross is present today, tomorrow, and for our entire lives. Now, we've got to balance that out because we remember talking about Sodom and their stubbornness, right? Now, Jesus is present to atone for our sins. 
if we go to Jesus, if we seek atonement, but if we're seeking self, there's always the danger we can start good, but we end up being destroyed as one of God's enemies. And so my question here for us as we wrap up, as we think about what Jesus has done for us on the cross, is to really, really try to reflect and be sober-minded about your life. Are you heading in the way of Sodom after having had a miraculous exposure to God? Or are you heading in the way of Abraham, the one which is grateful for the gift that's been given to us? And that gift is priceless. That gift is something all the prophets of the Old Testament were pointing towards. So just in a moment, we're going to have the... Um, just in a moment, we're going to have the, uh, the emblems, the, 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 wine, the uh, wine and juice and the, the bread passed around. And maybe reflect on that a little bit. And then afterwards, we'll also have the, the bags, the communion bags, oh, the communion, contribution bags passed around as well. And even as the contribution bags go around, think about, how, is, is, are you giving out of a grateful heart? Are you actually genuinely grateful for what you've been given? Or do you still see it as all yours and yours alone? Amen. Let's have a quick prayer. And then we can uh, take the uh, communion. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that you, you would deliver us, Lord. That you would make Jesus a royal priest of a different order, which is sufficient for our sins. And that even though we stumble, even though we fail like Abraham, Lord, you are merciful, Lord, and you show us grace. And that grace is all, on the, all, all based fundamentally on the sacrifice you made on that cross. I thank you, Lord, that you would come, you make that sacrifice willingly for people who disobeyed you, who were opposed to you, who were your enemies. Yet, Lord, you showed them the ultimate form of mercy. And then you brought us into your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, that we can have a larger purpose in our lives now, that you don't just leave us after salvation, but you bring us into a fold which is so, so much better. I pray for those, those disciples in Ukraine, Lord. I pray that they can have comfort, reassurance, Lord that you are going to be there through all the hard times and that we can all look forward, Lord, to the time when you come back and your kingdom is consummated in full. And even though we have hard times now, Lord, even though we're persecuted, even though we may even be killed, all justice will be done on the last day. I thank you for that, Lord, that we can eagerly hope and look forward to you returning. I love you, Lord. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.